You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hi, you're back with Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. Uh, Everybody already is talking about uh, what to do after the war in Gaza is over, what to do with the Palestinian Authority and so forth. So I want to put my two cents into this. There's a good possibility I'll change my mind. But right now, here's what I think. The, the Palestinian Authority, which was kicked out of Gaza back in 2005 and rules only in what's called the West Bank, and the only reason it rules there is because the Israeli army protects it, the rule of the Palestinian Authority in Gaza should not be returned. There's no distinction between the goals of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Both aim to destroy Israel. Disparity lies in their ideology. Hamas basically believes in Islamism, and it is said that the Palestinian Authority believes in some form of nationalism. So according to the... uh, Hamas, they want the immediate destruction of Israel. And according to the Palestinian Authority, they believe in a gradual and continuous harm to Israel. That was the whole deal that Arafat made 30 years ago. It's important to understand that under the rule of the Palestinian Authority, before it was kicked out, Gaza did not resemble Singapore, and there was little difference in the level of an animosity toward Israel. They promoted terrorism, and there was terrorism. Rocket launches from Gaza to Israel began years before Hamas took control. With numerous deadly attacks against Jewish settlements in Gaza, The Palestinian Authority education system encourages assaults on Jews and advocates for the destruction of Israel. That's how they educate their kids. Despite ideological differences, both Fatah and Hamas collaborated in both Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip for many years, including what was called the Second Intifada. Additionally, the truth of the matter is that the Palestinian Authority has been a political failure, first of all by the forceful takeover by Hamas in Gaza, and over the past decades, when Judea and Samaria was divided into areas A, B, and C, and areas A and B more or less under the authority of the Palestinian Authority. It is Israel's intelligence and military power that have been instrumental in preventing a coup and Hamas taking over. In other words, Israel protects the Palestinian Authority from being taken over by Hamas, which is what happened in the Gaza Strip. 
And Israel doesn't want that to happen in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Now, also, there's been a recent uh, resurgence of terrorism, particularly in the northern part of Samaria, which is an area including these two cities called Janin and Nablus. In these areas where the Palestinian Authority struggles to establish and maintain its rule, the challenges there are very significant. The Palestinian Authority's governance is corrupt, it's non-professional, and it has a lack of control in many areas, so they pose a continuous threat to the citizens of the state of Israel. The only thing that keeps the Palestinian Authority in some form of power in Judea and Samaria is it's protected by the Israeli army. Now, the uh, it's crucial to remember the the and to underscore the Palestinian Authority's ongoing incitement against the state of Israel is propagated through its education system, through its culture, its sports, in various ways. By the way, this includes a systematic economic policy that incentivizes violence against Jews because the Palestinian Army pays money to the families of terrorists. If they're killed by the Israelis, or they're put in jail by the Israelis, the Palestinian Authority compensates their families. That's where a lot of their money goes. The money that goes to the Palestinian Authority either goes to pay off terrorism or it's just stolen by the heads of the authority. So, obviously, if you take all these things into consideration, the reinstatement of the Palestinian Authority in the Gaza Strip is not a political solution. It will simply exacerbate the problem. The, the, uh, we just simply cannot allow the Palestinian Authority to return to the Gaza Strip. So uh, it's essential to recognize the grave error of segregating between security and civilian rule in Gaza. The, uh, we've, we've separated security rule and civilian rule, and it's, it's really a mistake. Genuine security will be elusive without a sustained Israeli civilian presence on the ground in Gaza. The history demonstrates that in regions where there are no Jewish settlements, Israeli security forces eventually withdrew, so it results in the transformation of those areas into terrorist bases. If there are no Jewish settlement, there is no Jewish army, and the area is taken over by the terrorists. This pattern has uh, become obvious in various parts of Judea and Samaria, in Gaza, and even to a lesser extent in Sinai. Sinai. There's no reason to assume that a similar scenario won't unfold in Gaza once again. 
Without the presence of Israeli civilians, the Israeli army will lack a military purpose and they're likely to depart from those areas, which is an opportunity for the Palestinian terrorism to come back again to those areas. In other words, if there's no Jewish civilian presence, there's no army Jewish army presence, and the area will be taken over by the terrorists. Now, by the way, Israeli settlement in Gaza offers advantages such as enhanced freedom of action for the security forces. There will be improved protection with also having civilian security forces. All the Jewish uh, settlements in, in, uh, in Gaza in those days and in Judea and Samaria have their own security forces that reinforce the army. I know um, for years when I lived in Carnation um, I had to do uh, uh, protective duty of the community at night, particularly. And today, the same thing is true. The, uh, also, when you have Jews in the area and you have the army in the area, you have the acquisition of high-quality, long-term intelligence pictures. The planning must involve breaking up the territory into different segments, facilitating better control for security forces. Like the situation in Judea and Samaria, settlements in Gaza would provide crucial support and physical and, uh, and um, spiritual, if you will, assistance to soldiers in the field to understand the purpose behind their presence. The soldiers who protect the settlements know why they are there. So it, it's good for the morale of the soldiers themselves. Simultaneously, Israel should resist the return of the hundreds of thousands of Gaza residents who evacuated in the meantime to the southern Gathers Strip. Thousands upon thousands of, uh, of uh, Palestinians living in the northern part of Gaza have moved to the southern part in the course of the last month to get away from the attacks of the Israeli army, and the army gives them time to get away. They don't want the people there. They don't want civilians in the way of the offensive they're doing now to get rid of the terrorists. They want the residents not to be there. So efforts should be made, whether individually or through agreements with different countries, to encourage people to relocate out of the Gaza Strip, maybe to Sinai, to other Arab countries. The uh, the, it is true that time constraints might intensify tensions between Gazans at the Egyptian border and Egyptian security forces that lead to concessions or attempts by refugees to enter Egypt at any cost. It's important if we get the Egyptian government to agree to let these people out, either to go to other countries or to have some form of settlement in the Sinai. So this is a, uh, an opportunity for Israel to push ideas 
that will change the democratic balance in the region and, and essentially rectify the, the strategic mistakes back when they had the 2005 disengagement. At that time, they removed over 9,000 Israeli citizens from their homes in Gaza. I remember I was representing uh, this, uh, this uh, station, and I was there when the army moved people out, and it was very unpleasant. So the, uh, this is sort of an opportunity, and, uh, and, and, and they should think about it. We should let the Jews come back into Gaza and figure out some way of where the Arabs should go. Another thing I want to mention in this uh, part of the program is um, the owning of uh, guns. Over the past month, more than 200,000 Israelis have filed application for gun licenses. They want permits to own and carry a gun. Given the spike in Palestinian terrorism over the over the past couple of years, and what happened in October 7th, it's not surprising. The uh, Most people that I know, I'm a, I grew up in Western liberal societies where carrying a gun was rare, and it was sort of frowned upon. I bought a gun in America when I came back to Israel 40 years, 40 years ago, so I own a gun. If anything, it was thought at the time that guns were something something that all kind of rednecks were viewed from afar. Americans are plagued by too much gun violence. There's shotgun and machine gun shootings in malls and schools and campuses and playgrounds and even occasionally in churches and synagogues. So um, the when I came to Israel, the guns were primarily in the hands of the military. And we sent our kids there, or we went ourselves, and we learned how to use guns. And soldiers coming home for leave would come home with a weapon on their shoulder. If you saw that thing in a bus in Brooklyn, you'd have a heart attack. But here you got a regular sight. Soldiers walking around with guns, and even the civilians walking around with guns. You, you just sort of got used to it, especially here in Jerusalem. So it's, uh, in other words, this country is pretty much protected by a large citizen-based army and a police force and paramilitary forces and so forth. The, it's true, up till now, it wasn't necessary for the average Israeli citizen to be armed. But I think this has changed. The, uh, the, the, the time when every Israeli and, uh, should be ready to repel attack is here. Israeli's war of independence was over. That's what we thought. The, then, then it was things. Things were really tough everywhere. But then today, the, the Israeli army has missiles and all kinds of things, and we thought that citizens don't have to carry guns anymore. But now, essentially, we. Uh, People are called what's happening now the Second War of Independence. 
The battle for basic security is underway, not just in the towns and the in the Gaza border. And every border area in Frankfurt, the country is so small that we were everywhere is a border here. From Israeli Arabs and Arabs from Judea and Samaria are so integrated into Israeli commerce and industry that the potential of terrorist attacks is is really felt everywhere. Rightly or wrongly, everywhere you go, there are Arabs. You go into a coffee shop in Jerusalem, there's a good possibility it's owned by an Arab, or the person behind the counter is an Arab. The guy who cleans our apartment house is an Arab. By the way, it's very interesting. He comes to clean on Friday, and lately he's been cleaning, but he doesn't show up. He must come in the middle of the night and do the work. I don't know whether he's afraid or what. But the, the Arabs are really integrated here in Jerusalem. The, uh, but then you have to think about some. Quite a few Palestinians from Gaza who seemingly work peacefully in the Jewish communities near Gaza. Uh, they lived in Gaza. They came, they worked in the Jewish communities. Apparently, they provided provi- precise intelligence information to the Hamas people who invaded Israel, and they knew where everything was located in some of these communities. The the notion that one can comfortably invite Arab construction workers into one's home or neighborhood is no longer true. The the the, the, the notion that various cities like Granada or anywhere in Israel and their industrial areas can go without armed civilian guards and checkpoints at every entrance has been destabilized. Israelis are rightly arming up for good reason. And it's it's a whole different world today than it was a month ago. So uh, people should arm themselves and people are taking this uh, uh, seriously. Uh, Israel is engaged in a permanent war. Consequently, Zionism must constantly seek to reshape and shake up the strategic environment, and we have to change the way we think. We don't know now where this struggle will ultimately lead, but we have to push forward. So you, you have to change the facts on the ground. The, we want our country to be safe. It may require that every citizen is essentially a soldier in the battle for our survival. And therefore, the, and, and, uh, and we have to reshape Israel's strategic realities. And if it includes going out and getting a gun, then you go out and get a gun. As I said a moment ago, more than 200,000 Israelis have filed for applications and for guns, and I think that's a good thing. People are realizing that in a struggle for national survival, everyone is a soldier. And if you're a soldier, you have to be armed. And therefore, this is a situation that we thought didn't exist. But now we know it does. So... We have to face the reality and do what is necessary to, to, to shape the reality 
so that it works in our favor and for our survival. I'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and uh, I'm not in a position to analyze what's happening in the war in Gaza. First of all, I'm not an expert. Second of all, there's a lot of information available in the various medium. And third of all, uh, the situation is changing very, very rapidly. And in the last couple of days, for the first time since the battle began, there's been rain. And that also changes the situation. At any rate, there are a lot of side things, issues, uh, that are coming out because of this war. And uh, one of the resultant things is is uh, there's a lot of growing anti-Semitism in the United States that apparently was not noticed before, and now it's becoming very visible. Mayors from more than 50 cities across the United States came together last week to pledge their commitment to a 10-point plan to combat anti-Semitism in their cities. In other words, anti-Semitism has become a very public issue. The, um, they had recently what they called the North American Mayor's Summit Against Anti-Semitism, and it was organized by, organized by the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement, and it was held in Fort Lauderdale last week. Incidentally, when I find these items in the newspaper, I find it interesting to have these organizations and gatherings that I never heard of before. Imagine the combat anti-Semitism movement. So apparently they felt that there's a tremendous urgency in addressing the rising anti-Semitism across the whole United States. And they gathered to establish what are the best ways, the best actions to take to to do something against this anti-Semitism. So the summit that they had pretty much provided a, a platform for the mayors and city leaders to take a proactive stance against the grows, growing threat of anti-Semitism in their cities. You know, we watch the news here in Israel, and you see all this anti-Semitism, particularly uh, in, in New York. It's, it's really terrible. Uh, we see the news every day. They have these people wandering around, I shouldn't say wandering around, they're gathering uh, with all kinds of anti-Semitic signs, and it's very interesting, by the way, that many of these people are wearing masks, because a lot of them, I think, are college students, 
and they're afraid if they're seen, something might happen to their uh, scholarships they have at the various universities. So they're, they're, they're publicly anti-Semitic, but they're, fried to, they're afraid to really show their faces. So it's interesting. So uh, they, they're trying to figure now these mayors, it's reached a point where these mayors got together to try to figure out what, what to do. So what they did was they pledged to designate a coordinator in each of their cities responsible for uh, for dealing uh, with the local Jewish community to ensure that there's uh, com communication and collaboration. And um, they also uh, want to implement something which has become very well known in the last uh, year or two called the IHRA Working Definition of Antisemitism. So what is this tool? It's a uh, it's a crucial tool for identifying and combating anti-Semitism. So, what this essentially does by having this meeting, it shows, it pretty much demonstrates their dedication to addressing this issue, which is rearing its ugly head. They uh, also declared a zero tolerance policy for anti-Semitism within their cities. So they, they made it clear that hatred and discrimination will not be tolerated. And they've initiated development of an education plan aimed at training municipal employees on how to recognize and respond to anti-Semitism effectively. Now, I, I really find that, first of all, I'm glad they're doing it. But I find it fantastic that uh, that now you know all these eighty years after the Second World War, when uh, when we know what it means anti-Semitism, what it could lead to, and all of a sudden we have to fight it on a municipal level here in the, in the United States. So what they're doing is also collaborating with with educational institutions. Uh, because they want to establish a safe environment for Jewish students and faculty members, ensuring their protection. That's interesting because in the news last week, we saw a Jewish students hiding in, uh, in universities in uh, New York, hiding from anti-Semites. So that, that's a whole new problem. And... Uh, and so the mayors are getting together to do something, uh, something about. Uh, so what happens in the case of the mayor is that essentially really know their communities, and they have authority, so they can put certain structures in place, and, uh, and they could uh, have uh, local educational ses sessions and things of that matter. That matter. So uh, this is something I could never have believed would have happened 10 years ago, even five years ago, that the mayors are getting together in the, in the American cities to fight anti-Semitism. So on one hand, it's good to see that they're doing it. On the other hand, it's very sad that the situation has reached a point where they indeed feel that they have to do this. Incidentally, just for the record, the mayors who came to this meeting include the mayors of Cleveland, 
um, the um, Miami-Dade, Little Rock, Arkansas, Providence, Rhode Island, Richmond, Virginia, Miami, and a few other cities. So the anti-Semitism has become a problem. Thank goodness it's being recognized, and thank goodness something is being done about it. Hopefully what they do will be effective. My personal feeling is that the bottom line has to do with education. But uh, let's see what happens. By the way, along the same lines, I note that the U.S. Department of Education announced it has opened uh, five new investigations into the handling of anti-Semitism. They're also... They've added two investigations to the handling of Islamophobia. Uh, I don't know much how much Islamophobia is being perpetrated. But anyhow, the, the U.S. government is opening this uh, investigation on and uh, seven colleges uh, in the United States. They announced last week that... Uh, they claim, uh, I'll quote what they said, as part of the Biden-Harris administration's continued efforts take aggressive action to address the alarming nationwide rise in reports of anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, and other forms of discrimination and Harris harassment on college campuses and K-12 schools since the October 7th Israel-Hamas conflict. That's what they wrote. By the way, to, to the best of my knowledge, of course, I'm not an expert, I don't know how much anti-Muslim activity has happened, how much anti-Arab activity has happened. The, 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 I get the impression that the only form of discrimination is anti-Semitism. So um, since, since October 7th, there's been a spike in anti-Semitism. Um, the White House itself, itself warned of an alarming rise of reported anti-Semitic events on college campuses. So how does the federal government do this? Well, they have to have to base their actions on law. There's an Office for Civil Rights and something called the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act which forbids discrimination based on race or shared ancestry at federally funded institutions. Keep in mind, the federal law can only deal with federal items, something that comes under their, uh, their, their coverage. The, uh, a, an executive order was signed by Donald Trump back in 2019 that uh, he talked about some anti-Israel uh, activity. And uh, so what happened is that uh, the, 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 the federal government is being involved. The mayors of cities are being involved because anti-Semitism has become an item. By the way, it's sort of super disturbing to me because one of the complaints was about instances of anti-Semitic graffiti and a trespasser on the, uh, the Hill Jewish Students Organization at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, the, um, there has an anti-Semitic incident there was 
especially uh, touches me because I'm a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. The very fact that it could be active anti-Semitism on the campus that I went to, I find uh, it touches me very much personally. So there, there have been previous anti-Semitism-related investigations, uh, and there was there were schools uh, pledging to put new resources in place for Jewish students. So uh, they're, they're trying to erase anti-Semitism awareness training for the staffs of the universities. So it's come to that. We're in the in the schools of higher education in the United States, there's enough uh, anti-Semitism going along to bring the, the uh, to the attention of the federal government, and that is um, that I I I read this news with mixed emotions. It, it's uh, good that the government's doing something about it. It's very bad we've reached a point where the federal government has to do something about it. It's a very bad sign of what's happening in the United States. By the way, I'd, I'd like to comment on another subject. Again, uh, I'm not an expert, but I'm watching, read the newspapers, watches the news. Turns out that the Israeli officials are increasingly pushing the question of who will control Gaza the day after the war ends. The end of the war is not in sight. You have to start worrying now what's going to be done when the war... First of all, how do you define the war as being ended? Obviously, there will be a lot of Palestinians left there. The goal of the war is to get rid of the Hamas leadership. By the way, uh, I saw an article that said there were 30,000 Hamas people in uh, Gaza and 10,000 have already been killed. I don't know how true that it is. And anyhow, the question is, who's going to control Gaza afterwards? Uh, Israel doesn't want to get stuck occupying Gaza. Uh, that's too big a job for Israel. Uh, the uh, the idea, I mean, if, if they go, after Gaza is destroyed, if you take a look at the pictures of what's happening so far just in northern Gaza, the place is being destroyed block, block by block. So uh, somebody has to put the place together again. And uh, the uh, it, it, it appears that our government are not interested in the uh, involvement of the Palestinian Authority there. Palestinian authorities is in the area called Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. And the only reason it stays in power there is because the Israeli army protects it. Otherwise, it would have been kicked out by Hamas, just like they were kicked out in Gaza. So, uh, and Israel certainly doesn't want to have the total involvement in taking care of it. And the Arab countries, uh, Israel hopes that the Arab countries will take the issue. Uh, so, the, the uh, the, the, the Israel doesn't have to have everything walking its lap. Israel is not interested in the Palestinian Authority's involvement in the Arab countries, they hope, would take the issue on. But the trouble is, so far, the Arab countries have said they'll not clean up a mess they see as made by Israel for invading too hard. Uh, so if Israel refuses international post-war solutions, and the world refuses Israel's post-war solutions, Israel could be stuck 
with uh, either belatedly accepting the world's ideas or being stuck with an occupation it doesn't want or withdrawing without a full and proper me uh, mechanism in place to uh, prevent the return of Hamas. So we're in the middle of a war which has to be won by destroying Hamas but it's a real serious question, what is going to happen after the war, and who's going to run it? Now, that is uh, against Hamas. The, uh, what they, we have another problem. On the north, in Lebanon and Syria, there's the other uh, terrorist organization called Hezbollah. It's estimated that it has 150,000 rockets including precision-guided missiles. So in a sense, Hezbollah is a much deadlier enemy than Hamas. So um, it, it turns out that the, the, minister of the Israel's Minister of Defense wanted to make a preemptive strike on Hezbollah near the start of the war. So uh, the reason he wanted to do this was because they had called up uh, 300,000 um, more than 300,000 reservists, they thought it's a good time for Israel uh, it would be it, 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 it has an enhanced readiness and so it was maybe a good idea to attack the guys in the north so uh, meantime because of the rockets coming down from uh, Syria and from Lebanon, there's uh, Tens of thousands of people are no longer in their homes. They're all in temporary homes. The uh, So what's happening now is that there's hope that the power of the God's invasion, and it's not too insignificant counterattacks in Lebanon, uh, will restore deterrence. But, well, so uh, right now, Hezbollah's getting away with firing rockets into Israel without any price for it. So we, so Israel is putting the issue off for now, but it is an issue that is hovering dangerously closely. In other words, we, we have, we're concentrating on fighting Gaza in the south, but Hamas is up there, and it's just, just as dangerous so we have a, a right. We're, we're about to face could be about to face a a two front war, and uh, they, they've done a, they've done an excellent job so far in Gaza, but uh, the question is who's going to rebuild Gaza afterwards? All, all the diplomatic post-war Gaza issues will have to be addressed, and they're all going to be extremely serious ones. Israel is a very different place today than it was a month and a half ago, and a lot of the problems that are coming up now are problems that cannot be addressed until this war is over. We don't know how long this war is going to last. The main idea is to destroy Hamas, there's still Hezbollah on the northern border. It's a very, very sticky situation. The bottom line is that Israel has a very sensitive position. 
they have to balance winning the war and trying to get hostages back. Question is, do you put a greater emphasis on destroying Hamas? Even if the two issues could also help each other, each in some scenarios, the, uh, they have to decide what to do because they have to destroy Hamas, but they have to save the captives. And this is a very tough decision for Israeli leadership. So let's see what happens. It's really a toughie. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Before I get into the... Uh, the several items I prepared for this part, part of my program, I have to mention to the listeners that I got an email from a friend of mine who lives in a suburb of Philadelphia. He's an old classmate of mine. We went to university together many years ago. And he told me that he is this year afraid to put a Hanukkah, Hanukkah candles in his window because he's afraid he will be attacked by people who are anti-Semites. And that came to me as really as a shock. And it's come to the suburban Philadelphia, what's happening in Israel being reflected by those who hate Jews, so much so that there are Jews today in the suburbs of Philadelphia afraid to display their Jewishness openly. And that's a real shocker. I haven't thought about it a, a lot. I just wanted to share that information with the listeners. I have to give it more thought. Anyway, uh, my wife and I were visited about six months ago by a group of professors and administrators from George Washington University in Washington. And one of them, one of the deans, is a gentleman named Michael Foyer, he has a daughter living here in Tel Aviv. He wrote to me re, uh, today uh, expressing his uh, hope that uh, we're okay. It turns out he had written a, an article several days ago in the Jerusalem Post. And uh, I want to quote a couple of things from his article because I think they're important. He says that when victims of 9-11 and the responders who tried to save them were still being, being dug out of the rubble, public sentiment began to shift. The first headline said, we are all Americans now. But a day later, it morphed into, we had it coming. If Americans hadn't been allies with various oppressive regimes, if only America didn't support Israel, if only this, if only that, we would have been spared Al-Qaeda's harsh decree. In other words, first you have the people who are actually victims, and then you start justifying what happened to them. Victims of sexual assault, police brutality, and racial violence know how this works. 
Following moments of sympathy or public outcry, they are made to endure thinly veiled attacks on their integrity. Uh, what did you say to a cop? Why do you wear a short skirt? Why are you jogging in that neighborhood? Anyway, in other words, you, you first, you, when you're attacked, you get sympathy, and shortly it, uh, the sympathy dies, and uh, the people who did the attacking start getting the sympathy. So why we shouldn't be surprised that two days after the catastrophe of October 7th, there were rallies in defense of the Hamas martyrs. While Israelis began loading body bags with the murders, murdered of Steyrot and Barry, demonstrators in an Instagram post were calling for an end to aggression against the Palestinians. So, uh, a more subtle form of blame confusion appeared quickly in mainstream opinion pages. One well-known expert attributed the Hamas act to the current right-wing Israeli government and to Israel's efforts toward so-called normalization with Saudi Arabia. It is an intuitively appealing hypothesis which has been repeated even by accomplished historians who should know better but it falls on factual grounds. Hamas was created roughly 20 years before Netanyahu's first term as prime minister and 36 years before the current administration. The 1987 Hamas charter, which was softened slightly in 2017, was clear. In 1987, Hamas said, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it. That is the Hamas Charter. So it's a very it's a very sad situation. It's interesting. The um, in Gaza's in Gaza, which is pretty much an open air prison, the GDP per capita is roughly the same as India's, only slightly lower than Egypt's. Education opportunities increased to Israel withdrawal in 2005, and public opinion polls in Gaza in 2018 showed more Gazans blame Hamas and Palestinian Authority than Israel for worsening their conditions. Efforts to explain the terrorism of October 7th in terms of the geopolitical complexities of Israel's statehood or the occupation, are really devious maneuvers aimed at obscuring the harder question. Even if Israeli policy bears some responsible for the conditions in Gaza, what code of justice allows for the random slaughter of innocent Israelis? To even hint at such an equation is to abdicate moral clarity. The interesting, why is it hard for some people to grieve Palestinian suffering, which is likely to get worse in the weeks ahead, without excusing what his fascistic leadership carried out on October 7th? Now, there are some leaders in the Muslim world who understand this better than some Jews. And, and they understand it better than the people in the progressive left who are still shouting glory to the Hamas martyrs. 
And fortunately, there are analysts who infuse real knowledge into the barrage of commentaries running mainstream and social media today. Tragically, universities and academic societies, with notable exceptions, were complicit in this blurring of responsibility and blame. Some administrators seem tangled in the complexity of academic freedom, scared about offending their stakeholders and people who donate to them, and determined to be balanced in their criticism. Leaders who wasted no time signaling their virtuous combination of heinous crimes at warped speed, like the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, all had parched throats and were unable to say anything about Hamas after Hamas committed a pogrom. The silent treatment was applied even in non-reaction to the outbursts of anti-Israel mongering among fanatics of liberationist dogma, anxiety about reaction from stakeholders and people who donate to the college. The, the, uh, they, they, the leadership of the colleges kept quiet. Protectors of academic freedom, freedom suppress their own voices and seem unaware that their silence is interpreted as accepted. A Jewish academic association uh, uh, and, and some organizations dedicated to ending anti-Semitism and racism, racism wrote a 150-word email to friends and alumni about the situation without mentioning Hamas, Israel, Jews, or terrorism. Now, to be clear, some distinguished institutions do not succumb to the temptation of appeasement. A letter to alumni from the Chancellor of the City University of New York, for example, called out the Hamas attack for what it was. But by and large, the academic institutions who should know better are not saying anything about what happened. Interesting also, a group of mostly religious colleges, Christian and Jewish, joined a strongly worded statement condemning Hamas. These examples are helpful. Others, for whatever reason, didn't react the way they should. It's interesting. The academic institutions in the United States who should know better simply did not stand up for Israel when they were attacked terribly now. So it appears all of higher education needs to do some soul-searching. Is it off-limits to express unconditional contempt for genocidal terrorism? Is that the model they offer their students, that the broader context they justify the killing of Jewish babies? It's interesting. Coming from institutions that aren't shy on other topics, they tiptoe around the flames of jihadi fanaticism. What that really means is acquiescence with or uncertainty about what is something that is essentially evil. If universities cannot know what evil is, that says a big question about the future of American society in particular. There's no question that there will be a big political reckoning here in Israel. There will be time for that, not now.
It's hard to believe this may be that pro-Hamas speakers in a recent webinar couldn't conceal their their, um, their happiness at Israel's the failure of Israel's high-tech intelligence and terrorist and security systems. The uh, when unstated was the inconvenient counterfact. In other words, had information about the impending attack been detected by Israel, had it been interpreted by Israel and communicated in time, Israel would have likely struck first in self-defense. Is there any doubt what the world reaction would have been? It's interesting. To this very day, people argue about whether Israel was justified in opening fire and advance with knowledge of the impending attacks by Egypt and Syria in 1967. So, you know, had Israel struck first in October, Israel would be blamed, just like it was blamed by some back in 1967. I mean, it's interesting. There are political, religious, and ideological underpinnings to the actions of Hamas and its defenders, for whom Palestinian liberation means total destruction of the Jewish state. But that is actually anti-Semitism. That's the word for it. But the world's oldest hatred, anti-Semitism, in its passive mode, too, unwillingness to denounce barbarism against Jews is evidence of a latent strain of the sickness of what is called bystanderism. The, uh, um, perhaps a more charitable explanation to be put forth. Among those who seem stymied in their reactions to the massacre or inclined to what essentially is a reflex, it could well be people find comfort by convincing themselves that it can't happen to me because I'll know what to do. It's strange. There are psychological reactions to what happened in Israel. By the way, um, right now, Israel, you know, Jews have endured horrors before. Back. As a matter of fact, it was interesting. Just this week, President Isaac Herzog was seen in a show restarting the famous printing factory in Kibbutz Berry, which was attacked, and a large number of its members were slaughtered. The uh, actually. When it comes to what's happening now, the the moral clarity of the world is being tested. The, the Israel will crawl out of this nightmare and rebuild, but there will be many who failed to support Israel. In other words, you need moral clarity to know what is right and what is wrong and who is in the right, and who is in the wrong. And if you cannot see what Hamas did as basically evil, then you've got a real problem. And it turns out that there are many academics, in particular in the West, particularly in the United States, who are un unable to 
to display the moral clarity to require, uh, that's required. And I, by the way, uh, it's interesting that uh, the, all over the United States they have these these uh, pro-Islamic uh, 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 groups, mobs, uh, uh, raiding uh, 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 public places, and that sort of bothers. One of the things that bothers me about it is there are so many pro-Palestinians in the United States. A lot of them are people who have come to the United States. A lot of them are students who are here on student visas for Muslim countries. The United States has not been clear about these things, who they, who they allow into the country and into their academic institutions, some of whom become leaders of, of academic communities, some of them become lecturers in universities, and then you have a very serious problem. I think I've mentioned uh, previously, uh, previously on this program that back in the 1930s, there was a, a uh, Italian uh, anarchist by the name of Antonio Gramsci, G-R-A-M-S-C-I. You can look him up on the internet. He, uh, he was a 20th century Italian anarchist, and his theory was that societies are not changed and governments are not changed by being overthrown by act of revolution. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but by slow and constant takeover of the educational institutions. And that is indeed what we are witnessing today in the West and particularly in the, in the United States. Now, this does not bode well for the Israel, but it certainly does not bode well for the United States nor for Western society. Because if the, those who are, who are uh, educating the next generation, and particularly in the institutions of higher education that are producing the leaders of Western society, if these people have, have been, uh, their education has been taken over with slow and constant uh, brainwashing in the educational system by people who are opposed to democracy and opposed to Western society, then indeed Western society, which is Judeo-Christian society, is in deep trouble. And I believe that is what is happening today. So we here in Israel <coughs> will do what we have to to get rid of these people who did us so much damage last month. That will take care of. And maybe some of the countries will get together and take care of the threat from Iran. But a more basic, or at least as basic a problem is, is what's going to happen to the next generation of leaders in the Western world if they've been slowly brainwashed in the educational system with values that are anti-Western, anti anti-Judeo-Christian, and if these are going to be the leaders, the Western society may be approaching an end. 
many societies last for hundreds of years, and then they're overtaken by something else. That the United States goes back to 1776. But could well be that is approaching it an end if it doesn't regain control of the educational system and then put it in the hands of people who have American ideals, Western Judeo-Christian ideals. Otherwise, the world is in deep trouble. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I saw a column written by uh, Micha Halpern. Micha Halpern is a social and political commentator, and he wrote something which I'd like to repeat because I think it's important. It turns out that uh, a number of uh, Jews, particularly in the universities, have sided with Hamas. In other words, they sided with this terrible slaughter that was done against fellow Jews. So the question he addresses is, how prevalent is support for Hamas among Jews in America? There's a political uh, the company, a, pol- a polling company called Singal, C-Y-N-G-A-L, and they polled Jews in America from October 16th to the 19th, uh, just a week after the horrific Hamas massacre. And in this poll, they discovered that 11.5% of those polled, we're talking about Jews, 11.5% of those polled felt that Hamas was justified in their murdering, raping, and kidnapping. It broke the two groups, uh, the group of 11.5 into two groups. 3.6 strongly agreed that Hamas was justified, and close to 8% somewhat agreed. So it comes out to 11.5%, which is simply 11.5% too many. They also discovered when polling these Jews, they also polled Muslims, and they found that 57% of Muslims, that is, more than half the Muslims in the United States, felt the same way as these Jews did. They they, uh, agreed that the Hamas was justified in what they did. Now, these people, uh, we do not believe, there are people who do not believe, and I do not believe, that these Jews can be educated. They are beyond educating, beyond the pale of acceptable Jewish behavior. They justify the murder, raping, and kidnapping of Jews. 
Once upon a time, they were called self-hating Jews. However, according to Micha Halpern, that term does not do them justice because they are beyond self-hating. It's time for us to put Jews who bash Israel and praise Hamas in what's called cherem, in other words, excommunication. Their cherem is something that was done by the rabbis when the rabbis had such power. They're not welcomed into Jewish life in any form. They support Hamas and they give credence to their attack by claiming that they're Jews. However, they must be rejected. We cannot permit them refugees anywhere in the Jewish community. And Halpern goes on to say, and I agree with him, people who agree, Jews who agree with what Hamas did, should not be invited to family celebrations. They shouldn't be allowed into temples and synagogues. They shouldn't be, people shouldn't even talk to them. Don't bury them in Jewish cemeteries and don't say Kaddish for them after they die because they are traitors to the Jewish community and as traitors, they endanger the community. They are collaborators with our enemies. Now, it's this, this is not the first time in Jewish history when traitors were identified and placed in Cherem. Uh, at one time, the phenomenon of the Jewish traitor was so dangerous that the Jewish community, that the rabbis changed the liturgy of the weekday prayer service. They had added an additional blessing to the daily prayers, which is called Birkat Haminim, a curse on heretics. It's a 12th benediction in the 18 benedictions in the, with the Shmona Esra, which we say uh, three times a day. By the way, it's called the Shmona Esra, which means 18 benedictions, but there are actually 19. And the 19th is this extra pair, Birkata, meaning, which is a curse on heretics. The change transformed these 18 benedictions which is the centerpiece of our daily prayer, they changed it into 19 prayers, although it's still referred to as the 18, the Shmona Esra. The, repair, the prayer is recited silently three times and aloud twice in a significant part of Jewish prayer. In Talmud, in Berachot, the, the tractate Barachot, which is the first tractate of the Talmud, it records that Rabbi Shmuel HaKatan was commissioned by the rabbis of Yavne to write a prayer about disloyal Jews and Jewish groups causing damage and creating danger to the Jewish community. This kind of person has existed, unfortunately, since there have been Jews. So exactly who the Jews and the Jewish groups were is a matter of speculation. During the Middle Ages, when groups of Jews collaborated with non-Jews who were attacking Jews, the European Christian centers of Jewish books changed this blessing. They cut out this blessing against heretics. But the direction of the blessing was still as 
targeted against Jewish traders to the Jewish community. So we may need a new term for this group of people, but whatever the term is, it should not be based on anything Jewish. Hamas supporters no longer can be considered Jewish. We must take these traitors seriously. Years ago, the traitors were taken so seriously that an extra prayer was added to the daily service, So those people who say this prayer every day, this prayer should take on added significance because today we still have Jewish traitors, unfortunately. People who agree with what Hamas did, Jews that is, who agree with what Hamas did are traitors to the Jewish people and they should be treated as traitors. They shouldn't be allowed into our synagogues and we should not be invited to family celebrations and they they shouldn't, people should not even talk to them. To agree with what Hamas did puts you outside the Jewish community. There are no two ways about it. And now I want to say a few words about something that's uh, starting to get uh, big headlines in Israel. There's a hospital in Gaza, and uh, it's called Al-Shifa. Um, it's, it's one of Gaza's most prominent and best hospitals, and it's in Gaza City. The site was a British Army barracks where in 1946, the British governors of the area built a quarantine center for those suffering from various diseases. In the the 1948 Israeli War of Independence, Egypt administered the Gaza Strip and turned it into a proper hospital. After the 1967 Israeli victory in the Six-Day War, the... um, Israel expanded and reconstruction the hospital, and this was done by Israel as part of a coexistence project. Israel was trying to be nice to the uh, Palestinians. Then, uh, however, after Israel left the Gaza Strip and Hamas took over, things changed. As cited by the Human Rights Watch during the Fatah-Hamas conflict back in June 2007, you remember the, the Fatah, which was led by, um, which is now in the West Bank, at that time when Israel gave over the land, it was given to Fatah, but the Hamas kicked them out. So it turned out that during the war between Fatah and Hamas, the um, they clashed at the hospital and they killing members of each other's organization. Some injured people brought to the hospital were killed by Hamas terrorists once they were inside. A report from a British medical journal in 2007 stated that doctors at Al-Shifa revealed that the medical staff are suffering from fear and terror, particularly of the Hamas fighters, who are in every corner of the hospital. 
Now, Hamas eventually fired about 600 doctors because they were affiliated with Fatah and even threatened to shoot them if they returned to the hospital. And after this, this hospital became a focal point as most media coverage started to come from correspondents reporting from the hospital Israel had begun to warn the public of evidence Hamas was using the hospital as a military base and warned that Hamas terrorists hide in hospitals. So um, this was confirmed by Amnesty International, and uh, it turns out that uh, Hamas took over the hospital and they ran it as part of their headquarters. Is the It was the headquarters of Hamas terrorism, who can be seen all over the place in the hallways in the office. The um, Even the Palestinian Health Ministry accused Hamas of using parts of the hospital as a detention and torture center and withholding medical care. The PBS even aired a documentary in 2006 featuring Hamas terrorists patrolling the walls of the hospital. So, however, if all of this seems far-fetched that a hospital is being used this way, in the first couple of weeks of the war now in October, the IDF, or our army, released footage of Hamas interrogations of terrorists caught within Israel borders who flat out admit that Hamas terrorists hide in the Al-Shifa hospital. In other words, the reality is that Hamas, this terrorist group, is embedding itself inside a hospital. That is why, incidentally, the Israeli army has created a safe passage corridor to extract patients from the hospital and announced that it would launch a precise and targeted operation of Hamas in a specified area of the hospital. IDF spokespersons have reported that every couple of nights, Hamas officials show up at the hospital and they fill up on fuel. It's like a gas station terrorism. In other words, Israel allows fuel to go into the Gaza area, particularly for use by hospitals. It turns out that every couple of nights, Hamas terrorists show up at the hospital and take the fuel for themselves. At the start of the operation a month ago, our army brought fuel and humanitarian aid, incubators, water, and food to the patients at the hospital to assist in the humanitarian crisis that's been caused by Hamas. So that didn't stop the defamations against Israel from the BBC which misquoted a Reuters report about Israel targeting medical staff and Arabic speakers. That simply was not true. They later apologized and clarified what they should have stated. Was Israel entered the hospital with medical staff and Arabic speakers? More and more proof comes to the surface. In this hospital, <coughs> the Israeli army exposed a 55-meter-long terror tunnel 10 meters deep underneath the hospital. 
The tunnel shaft consists of a blast-proof door and a firing hole meant to block Israeli forces from entering the command centers and the underground areas belonging to Hamas. In other words, this hospital is a cover-up for these deep tunnels in which the terrorists, terrorists hang out. The, uh, the inter- um, it's interesting that even more frightening, our army, the IDF, released surveillance cameras footage from Shiva Hospital from October 7th, revealing Hamas terrorists forcibly bringing in a Nepali a citizen whom Hamas abducted from Israel. And they brought in a Thai citizen also. One of the victims is seen on a stretcher while hospital staff stand by and watch Hamas bring them in. Also, a a vehicle that was stolen from the Israeli army can be seen inside the area of the hospital. Our army also revealed that they found evidence that an IDF soldier was captured, forced to film a hostage video, was murdered in the basement of the hospital. One thing is abundantly clear here. Hamas is using a hospital for their terror operations. This is obviously a violation of international law, and uh, of course that's something you can only expect from a terror organization. The world should be screaming against this, but instead, outlets like BBC are fabricating ways to discredit the evidence, and organizations such as Human Rights Watch, though the Red Cross, not only remain silent, but are essentially complicit bystanders in what Hamas is doing. But it appears that no much, um, no matter. No matter how much truth is exposed by the Israeli army, in the end, those who turn a blind eye to Hamas's war crimes have already made up their minds about the value of Jewish life. These are the facts on the ground. A hospital is not only being used as, as a terrorist center, but it also stands over a deep tunnel which apparently is the terrorist headquarters. So these people that we are fighting against have no no bounds in their activities. They are totally inhuman and inhumane, and they must be destroyed. There's no two ways about it. If we don't destroy them now, we're going to have to fight them again every few years. And that simply does not make sense. We've been pressured now to uh, to take time off from our fighting to allow them to release some of the prisoners they've taken from Israel, which obviously must be done. We must do the humane thing. But this is a very complicated situation. There is over 200 people reported missing after the attack at the beginning of October, they're talking now about releasing 50-some people. In other words, th- these terrorists are being very clever. They're uh, releasing the prisoners a little bit at a time. Each time Israel will, be, will stop fighting them for a few days, 
so they can rearm and do more mischief. It's a very delicate situation, and uh, hopefully our government will hand, hand it, handle it properly. By the way, I must uh, say something. I saw in an interview with our Prime Minister, Netanyahu, the other day, and he really looked bad. I don't think he's had any sleep. He's been Prime Minister for longer than anybody else, and people, even before this war began, people were pushing for him to leave office already. He's obviously going to have to leave office after this war. What he's trying to do now, as I understand it, is to go out not as a defeat, as being defeated, but to do something big for Israel in this war now, so he'll go out with glory. Only time will tell. And thanks for listening. Let's hope things get better. This is Jay Shapiro. Until next week, take care of yourselves.